will be handling announcements this morning. Hello. <laughs> Thankfully, there's only two. Um, the first one is we have a Connect card on your chair. There should have been a white small paper that says Connect, I believe. And we would like everybody, no matter who you are, to fill that out. We like knowing that you have been here today. And then anybody who's watching on the live stream, please go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact. And please fill out that online connect card. We love to hear from you if you have questions or would like to get involved in any way at our church. We'd love to know more about where you're at. And um, yeah, that's that. And then um, Jen and Jason are not here this week. So we will have Bryce preaching for us this morning. Woo-woo! We love you, Bryce. Um, but Jason will be starting a new series next week to just launch into fall. It's a really good one. He shared a little bit with me. Uh, you don't, you don't want to miss it, basically, is what I'm saying. It's pretty awesome. So he will be, he will be back next week. But that is, that's my announcements. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Good morning, Brookview family. Good to see you today. I was just here a couple weeks ago. I'm starting to feel like a regular. I'm going to fill out that Connect card. <laughs> uh, if we haven't met, my name is Bryce McFadden. I am one of the pastors up at Smoky Point Community Church in the big city of Arlington. And uh, so... Uh, I've been on staff there now uh, 27 years, so it's pretty amazing. I've just been able to fly under the radar, and uh, they didn't even know I was there, and here I am. <laughs> no, I just did Anyway, it's such a privilege to be here with you, and by the way, it was great to see uh, Todd and Danielle and their family, uh, Jorgensen, because we share this family with you, and uh, so you guys are living in the area here, and so you frequent here, and we see you up at Smoky Point, so it's fun to see you guys here today, too. So they are family, so that's good. Um, I, I appreciate everything that goes into the weekend service. It's, uh, I, I feel a part of a team. And I was going to mention this morning, one of the things that I do when I'm coming here to speak is, Jason wants to know the title of the sermon. I suppose that's for online purposes. And uh, then he passes off some information to the worship leader, um, so I basically give a very skimpy outline of what I'm talking about, and they have to, like Rebecca has to figure out, hmm, how do you put music to this um, so that we're all coordinated? And uh, then Jen, she puts the slides together. And so it's just not all me. It's a team deal. But I'm always amazed how God works in this and the music lines up with the message every time. And uh, so it's just a privilege to be here working with you as a team and uh, to see you as a family as well. Um, I'm honored to be here today. I want to talk about God's waiting room. God's waiting room. Uh, 18 years ago, my father spent six months in ICU in Billings, Montana with heart failure. Um, eventually, he passed away. Uh, I miss him. 
He was the one who led me to the Lord. He mentored me in the faith, and I was blessed to work with him for eight years in ministry as a fresh college student, uh, not knowing the ropes, but to work with my dad was a pleasure. And I was working as an associate for him in Everett, Washington. So I basically moved from Montana out to Washington and have been here ever since. But while my dad was in ICU and basically on life support, with the hopes of being able to leave that section of the hospital, every day my mom spent hours at the hospital in the waiting room. There were times that she would be briefly allowed to visit my father, and there were other times that she was just hoping for some good news from the medical staff. They all got to know my mom quite well. She came there every day for six months and spent hours waiting. And yet, for her, it was not all about just waiting. There were others in the critical care unit that had family members that were out in that waiting room that were fearful and hurting and anxious. And she began to minister to them. She became a source of comfort to others. She had the opportunity to pray for and to pray with others in that waiting room that God would intervene and bring healing and recovery and bring peace and comfort to the family. After my dad passed, my mom continued to visit that waiting room. Her misery, in some ways, had become her ministry. And she became an official volunteer, and every Friday for hours she would show up to that ICU waiting room and minister to those that were there. I think she finally quit doing that when she turned 90, five years ago. <laughs> um, Today we're going to spend some time talking about some people in the Bible that spent time in the waiting room in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And when I was here a couple weeks ago, I actually took the section of Scripture right before it, so I'll give a little bit of background. But uh, this is a passage in verses 12 to 26. It's one of those passages that you ever read in your Bible and you go, I'm going to skip this part and get to the good stuff. I mean... Good. I, I love the honesty here. We can be honest. Uh, there are times that I will, uh, I'll get to the genealogy in the Gospels, and it's kind of like, okay, let's get to the action, you know? Or you'll be reading on the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and you're kind of like, okay, after the second tribe, you're just kind of exhausted. And okay, let's, let's get to the action, the miracles, the stories of faith. And so you kind of like have that tendency to just want to gloss over it. But I want to say... Digging into this section of scripture, there's some real gems there. And one of the things that I struggled with as I was looking at this section is I had to be careful not to get into the weeds. Uh, sometimes when you're um, looking in scripture, there's rabbit trails that you can go off on. They're interesting, but honestly, it'll take you all over the place. And so I've tried to stay in the lane as much as possible. Um, but I hope that you will see some of these gems in Scripture here today in a, in a passage that often we just tend to skim right past, okay? little background, Jesus has been with his disciples up on the Mount of Olives, and uh, he had asked them to wait in Jerusalem. This is right before Jesus departs. Now, the interesting thing is they are to wait in Jerusalem for something extra that he was going to give them of the Holy Spirit. And I say extra because I believe they already had the Holy Spirit. Back in John 20, he breathed on them 
to receive the Holy Spirit. And he said those words, receive the Holy Spirit. But the clue comes in verse 8 of chapter 1 when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. There was something extra that God was going to bring. And honestly, that kind of marked the emergence of the early church. And the empowerment for ministry as he sent them out, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what the church did. And by the way, that's the outline of Acts as well as you walk through it. Um, Jesus is then surrounded by a cloud. He's taken up into heaven. And suddenly two messengers, angelic beings, are right there with the disciples. And they're going, what are you doing looking up into the sky? He's going to return someday in the same way you see him go. Um, and it almost gives the implication of what are you staring up at the sky for? It's about time now you do the next thing that you've been called to do. Don't just stand there looking up. And so the disciples, they head back to Jerusalem, and they are going to be waiting. And I want to say something about waiting. It's just not sitting around and doing nothing. Now, I know that several of you know what it is to wait. Um, I had a buddy, very outgoing, and uh, wherever he would go, you probably know people like this. They get into a conversation. They've just been going into the store to grab some milk, but they get into a conversation, and a half hour later, they come out, or an hour later. Um, I had a buddy like that. So when he would go places, his wife always knew that he was so social, she would bring a book along. <laughs> and you'd find her sitting in the car reading the book while he was out socializing. Kind of a funny uh, arrangement. But I want to say this, waiting is not just sitting there doing nothing. Waiting is actually a spiritual activity. And we are told in the scripture in various places, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. But that doesn't mean that you just sit back and you passively wait. Now, I know there's times in our lives that we feel like maybe there's not, not really any activity going on and we feel like we're in a holding pattern, unsure of what necessarily to do. And so we may feel like we're waiting. Maybe we're at a place in life where we have a big decision to make. Uh, it could be a new job. It could be marriage. It could be uh, relocating, buying, selling a home, uh, pursuing education. And we're not sure. And so we're waiting. We have a big decision before us. There's no flashing lights, no angelic beings standing next to us telling us the next thing to do. Now, sometimes we have a lot of choices, and that can be confusing, too. I remember when I was in Bible college back in Minnesota, uh, I candidated, and that's the pastoral way of going and trying out a job, and uh, so I went to McGregor, Minnesota for the weekend. Ever heard of McGregor, Minnesota? Oh, nice. Big Sandy Lake, yeah. There's a Bible camp right there. I think the town, the population, I just looked it up yesterday, 451. Yeah, it's a big place. Um, the interesting thing is it's a very seasonal place because it shuts down during the winter, but then summer, all the people coming up to their summer cabins and I suppose tourists as well, and the camps are running full steam ahead. Um, so that was the church I went to, and you know, the funny thing, I'm, I'm this, I was still a senior in college uh, looking for my first gig in ministry, and I show up to the church, and I was trying to impress them. They were trying to impress me. Um, so it was kind of mutual, and they ended up calling me to be their pastor. At the same time, I had an invite from a church out in Everett, Washington, where I had done my internship to be an associate, 
And then the Northwest uh, District was talking to me about doing a church plant in Marquette, Michigan, and there's a church in Ashland, Montana. So I had these choices, and it's like sometimes you have so many choices, you're not sure what to do because they're all kind of good choices. And you have to somehow go, God, how are you going to lead me in this? And there comes a point where you finally just need to make a decision. But it's a process, and sometimes that stage of waiting or seemingly waiting can be a time of confusion. Well, I want to share some biblical principles today, and it's not one of those sermons where uh, I'm going to tell you five steps to finding God's will in your life. You just follow one, two, three, right in order, and it'll lead you right there. Uh, I want to just use the narrative of Scripture and point out some things that obviously reveal the leading of God. And I think these are true even in our own lives today. So I'm trusting that it will be very practical for us as we spend time in God's waiting room. So we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Uh, we get, we get a, a sense of distance, how far they had to walk. By the way, uh, all the commands the uh, Jewish leaders um, expanded on those. Uh, the word legalism come, comes to mind, you know, because they wanted to answer everything in life. If we're going to honor the Sabbath and rest on the Sabbath, what does that mean? How far can we really walk and it be okay? Uh, you know, can we, can we bring a hot dish to the next door neighbor? Is that too far? And what about working? Do we need to make it the day before? You know, all those kinds of details. And, and frankly, it just, it's very legalistic. But that'll take us into the weeds. That's another sermon that Jason maybe can preach down the road. Um, just kidding. Uh, I'll tell you how far it was. Okay, it's 2,000 cubits. That makes sense. Oh, let me clear it up. It's six furlongs. Actually, it's about two-thirds, three-quarters of a mile, okay, uh, for reference. They wind up in the upper room, and uh, typically upper rooms are higher than lower rooms. Start, start with the obvious, okay? Um, they're usually the best rooms in the house. In fact, wealthy people often would rent out these. These were considered their living rooms. They would often rent out these rooms for uh, people to use. Uh, what's interesting, do you recall when Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, what room they were in? It was an upper room. Do you remember after Jesus was crucified and the disciples were afraid and they were hiding out in a room, an upper room, and the doors all locked and suddenly Jesus appears? And now they're in an upper room again. It's possible from looking at the scripture that this was a very familiar room to the believers. Um, what was perhaps the celebration room became the hiding room and now has become the waiting room. But here's the first point. They obeyed. He said, wait in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to do something. I want you to wait. And they obeyed. Now, if you desire, desire to discover God's will in your life, begin by obeying what you know. That's the best posture to be ready for what God wants to do in your life. 
Am I living in obedience? No, I notice I didn't say, uh, am I living in perfection? <laughs> um, I think we're all too street smart to know that uh, we can't live perfectly. I say this, living a confessional life is part of the life of obedience, isn't it? And I'm so thankful that God has provided forgiveness. And that should be a part of our life, a confessional life, alongside of our life of obedience. Let's continue. Verse 13b, those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now we're given kind of a sampling of those that were present that day. Not an exhaustive list because really there were 120 people in this room. I have a feeling that if we were given a list of the names of the people, I have a feeling we would recognize a lot of characters from people we met in the Gospels. But they give kind of a sampling. They, they name off the disciples, and there's only 11 names, by the way, because Judas is no longer with them. We'll talk more about that later. And then there are women. It says, along with the women. By the way, women played a very significant role in the ministry of Jesus. They were followers as well. And uh, the scripture talks about them being helpful in ministry. They also provided out of their, their means to help for the financial needs of this ministry. And certainly all that was countercultural in that day. Jesus, his mother Mary, is mentioned specifically. And then goes on to mention Jesus' brothers. How interesting. Now, back in Mark 6, we see his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Now, it's interesting to see the brothers. Here they are now among the believers because during Jesus' ministry, there was a little bit of disconnect between Jesus and his brothers. In fact, they thought he was out of his mind, possibly demon-possessed. Now, I just had some fun thinking about this. Could you imagine growing up in the family with Jesus? Could you imagine playing hide-and-go-seek? No fun. Jesus always knew where you were hiding. How about a card game? He knows what you're holding. <laughs> um, what about Mary saying a very familiar statement? Why can't you boys just act a little bit more like Jesus? You know? Yeah, that had been some interesting family dynamics for sure. But the cool thing is, now they've become followers. Now they believe who Jesus really is as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And what were they doing? They joined together constantly in prayer. They're in the waiting room, but they're very active. They're praying. So that's my second point. They were united in prayer. Uh, the King James says it this way, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication. Uh, they were one in mind. There was harmony among them. And I'm going to mention some firsts as we go through this passage because there are some things that we see as firsts of the early church. Uh, as we get into the book of Acts, the first thing that we see is this is the first public gathering of prayer among the community of believers. 
Um, I wanted to say something about prayer. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe you're in a life group. Maybe your church has had special times of prayer. But there's one thing that I always notice that I think is very unique. When believers come together to pray, God does something in the heart that unifies us, that humbles us, that brings us together with shared desire and and mission, and there's a natural unity that flows out of prayer, and that never ceases to amaze me, and I've, I've seen that over and over again through the years of ministry. Prayer brings us together and unites us, and so the disciples are obedient. They're united in prayer. Let's pick it up in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out, gory details. Um, Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Now there's a couple questions uh, as we look at that section. In the Gospels, you learn that Judas hung himself. And here you get this gory description of him falling and bursting open, and I won't go any farther with that because lunch is coming. Um, how do you reconcile that? Well, a lot of people say, well, um, he, he could have hung himself. Eventually, the rope could have broke, however that worked, and then the second part could have happened. Um, how did Judas buy the field? We have no record of him buying a field. The fact is, when Judas got the 30 pieces of silver and was filled with remorse, he went back to the temple, threw the money on the floor before the chief priests. They weren't going to keep the money because that was blood money. And so they bought the field. But in a sense, Judas actually bought the field. That was his blood money. And he bought the farm also. It's Peter. He steps up in leadership before, that was a slow one, wasn't it? Um, lest anyone think that Jesus was the victim of an unfortunate accident and that the betrayal of Judas somehow messed up God's plan, Peter really clears it up. It's part of God's divine plan. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, he says. This was according to plan, and I, I know this, I, I can't comprehend all the ways that God works to accomplish his purposes. Uh, Sometimes what seems bad in God's economy is actually a good thing. Uh, I think about the Pharaoh in Egypt. We were singing that song um, in worship this morning. But the Pharaoh of Egypt was an absolute tyrant to the enslaved Israelites, yet God produced something great out of it. And, And I even read in the Old Testament where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and I realized I don't understand fully the sovereignty of God but I see what he accomplished through it. And Judas actually fulfilled scripture. The betrayal was all a part of God's plan. It wasn't a win for the dark side. 
God was sovereignly orchestrating everything. In fact, Jesus, even before the cross, he's with his disciples and he predicted the betrayer. And uh, in a very subtle way, he said, well, the, to the one that I dip this bread and hand it to, that, that's the one that's going to be, betray me. And he handed it to Judas and none of the disciples picked up on it. After the resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus said to his disciples, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I would have loved to have been there just to, to see Jesus string the whole story together. How cool. This is a first. This is the first time we see Peter actually quoting scripture. Very interesting. And he's quoting from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which were actually psalms written by King David and really under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they applied to David in that day, but they also had a prophetic implication and applied to Jesus as well. That's why we call them uh, messianic psalms. And Peter knew this. Was it because Jesus explained that to him? I'm not sure. I mean, he did walk him through the Old Testament. But here's a point I want to make. They relied on God's word. The decision-making going on, this whole process, they are tapping it right into Scripture itself. They relied upon God's word. Know this, any perceived guidance from the Holy Spirit that is contrary to the word is wrong. The Holy Spirit will never lead you contrary to God's word. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth, not away from truth. And we can rely upon God's word. I love how the psalmist David says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says, um, he talks about the renewing of our minds. And we know in renewing our mind with God's word, he says, um, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect and pleasing will. Let's continue, verse 21. Peter continues, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The apostles uh, were made up of a group of men who traveled with Jesus, they knew each other well, they knew Jesus well, and they were witnesses to the resurrection. And um, I guess the question here is, why do they feel the need to replace Judas? Well, he took it right out of Scripture. Um, and I thought some other reasons, you don't want to land on an odd number, you know, 11 disciples doesn't sound right, and if you're a Seahawks fan, you know how important the 12th man is, right? But seriously, Peter knew they needed a replacement from the Psalms that he quoted. And there's even more to it. And I don't want to, I'm not going to hopefully take us into the weeds, but here's what Jesus said in Matthew 19. He said this, because there's a prophetic implication. There's a purpose for the apostles even in the eternal kingdom. Listen to this, what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. Interesting. And if we look into the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 14, the wall of the city, this is describing the new Jerusalem, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Interesting. So not only was the Psalms being quoted by Peter to realize they needed and appoint a 12th man, but we see even in the plan of God and in the ultimate future, there's a purpose for the 12 apostles in the kingdom. Prophetic fulfillment. A couple firsts that we see, the first church business meeting, first selection of leadership as the church, and the qualifications, one who had been with the Lord from the beginning, one who was known and trusted, and one who is witness of the resurrection. By the way, just a side note, all the apostles gave their lives as martyrs, and they were never replaced. It was a special, special group. So, verse 23, they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias, and Matthias, sorry. Um, the first one had three different names you could call him by. That's, that's a red flag. I'm uh, just kidding. He's aliases or something. Then they prayed. Now look, they pray again. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Um, not very complimentary. I think they know where his ultimate destination was. But notice they're active in prayer. We don't know anything about these two candidates for apostles. Likely they were part of a larger group of disciples because we know even in the Gospels that Jesus sent out a group of 72. There were way more disciples than the, than the 12, really. But now's where it gets a little bit weird. Verse 26. Then they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Drawing lots, casting lots, kind of like drawing straws, rolling the dice, flipping the coin. Isn't that weird? I mean, going through all these really good principles, then we come to the last one, and it's like, well, flip a coin. <laughs> Uh, it's more than that, okay? Uh, it was a common way of making decisions. Actually, in the Old Testament, I think in the book of Numbers, we see it five or six times. Uh, casting lots, we know in the New Testament, Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing. And the objects that were used in casting lots, they were typically small pieces of wood or stone that were numbered or inscribed with the names of those from whom the choice was being made. And they were put into a container or folded up in one's garment, shaken together, and then cast out. And the lot that fell out first was a clear sign that's the person to be chosen. Interesting method. <laughs> it was seen as a legit method to know God's will. In fact, it was well known. In the Proverbs, it says it this way, 16, Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I know what somebody is thinking. Well, I'm just going to pray about this and head to the casino right after the service. <laughs> the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Should we, should we roll the dice today to determine God's will? 
I want to say that I've spent enough years in ministry to know that this actually might be a better way than how some people make decisions. Let me name a few. Some people make decisions on unusual signs or circumstances. I remember a guy that was dating and he was considering marriage. He came into my office one day and he let me know that he had a word from the Lord. He had been driving down Smoky Point Boulevard and every time he came to a stoplight, it was green. He told me, I think that's God's way of telling me it's green lights for the engagement. Now I'm wondering if he would have come up with the opposite conclusion if they were all red. Another way that people make decisions is what do I want? What do I want? Put me first and then ask God to bless it. This one's popular too. It's very uh, similar but a little bit different. I want my own way but I want it confirmed by somebody in authority. Whether that be a pastor or a counselor. I'll just shop for the right counselor to tell me what I want to hear. And if I don't like what they say, I'll go to somebody else. And eventually I'll find what I want to hear. Reminds me of the guy who went to his doctor and after some tests and a blood draw, the doctor told him he needed to eliminate caffeine and go on a strict diet. Instead of taking that advice, he went and got a new doctor. Some people just go off their feelings. This is real popular too. If it feels right, it must be the Holy Spirit. Many times uh, one identifies in their feelings something that's totally contrary to God's will. Things can feel good and right and still be wrong. By the way, this is the last time in Scripture that we see the casting of lots. Why do you think? Uh, now they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to lead and guide them. And when you look at the rest of Acts, you see very evident and clear leading and uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers in the early church. Here's my final point. And this is what we find even through the method of casting lots. Number four, they stepped out in faith and made a decision. This was after they obeyed. They were right where God wanted them to be. They had prayed. They were alongside of others in a spirit of unity. They relied upon God's word. What does God's word have to say? And then they took a step of faith and they trusted God. I want to say sometimes when you get to that fourth step, um, maybe there is a sense of uncertainty, but it's also a step of faith. That trusting that God has been along through the entire process. And he's teaching us things in this whole period of time. He's teaching us what it is to trust him, to rely on him, to trust in his plan and his goodness and his love and his care for us. And then we step out. Even into uncertainty at times. With faith and trust in God. I don't know where you are at. I don't know who this is for. It's good for me. I had to preach it to myself first. <laughs> but maybe you feel like you're in a place of waiting, trying to discern God's will. Are you living in obedience? Start there. Are you earnestly seeking God and His will in prayer? Are you relying upon His word? What does He say in His word? And if so, if these things are all true, 
Maybe God is calling you to take a step of faith. Make a choice. Can you trust him? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you so much for their narrative of the early church in Acts and how you worked and led them. And frankly, in some ways that we probably would often just overlook. But Lord, you were clearly in the process and you were leading and guiding them. Lord, I pray that you would apply this to our lives wherever we're at. And Lord, I pray that we would be walking in your will, discovering your will, and Lord, yes, stepping out in faith as well. So we trust you in this. We know that you're good. We know that you love us, and we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.